Hi everybody, welcome to a new episode of the Womenhood and International Relations podcast. I'm your host, Natalia Bonilla, and today we are going to be sharing with you the final results of the Ser Mujer en Latinoamérica documentary map. This is my third independent documentary production, and we are very, very excited because We've been doing this work for over three years now, and this past year, the 2020, in spite of all the challenges that we have been experiencing as humankind, have been able to harness on the power of community and storytelling. Back in April, Maria del Consuelo Torija, our associate producer, now reached out to me after quite some time that we haven't spoken, um, it's been over a year now that they have invited me, the Colectiva Tiamat Kubi, to give a conference in Puebla at the University uh, Benemerita in Puebla. And I met her and the Colectiva, and one of the things that really struck me is that she was one of the main participants of the, the 2017 documentary map. And I was blown away that we met two years later, they invited me over to their university to give a conference to them, and then this year she approached me once again, um, basically seeking advice on which projects to engage on, and I felt like we could be a good connection towards the project to ended to end the documentary project so last april we began a new journey together where she focused on data on data journalism creating the methodology for this uh documentary while i was focusing more on you know finishing the interviews and finding the funds to 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 launch it this uh, november so we have already been discussing about this documentary map for quite some time in the podcast. I've done a previous episode that I invite you to check out, which is called Preparing for the Ser Mujer in Latin America documentary launch. In that episode, you will find all the road that lead us here. Um, but today I want to share with you basically what we found. And... This is going to be groundbreaking because tomorrow we are going to be marking the International Day of Elimination of Violence Against Women. And we are also going to have a virtual premiere in the English language for those of you that joined the documentary crowdfunding um, campaign. And I'm very excited for that. But I also wanted to use this platform, use the podcast to share what we have found here in the Latin American and the Caribbean continent, since we have more than 700 testimonials from women in 18 countries. And once again, this is an independent production, a voluntary work that Maria and I have done, only two people. And the first thing that I want to share is that this documentary map is not going to be representative of all the realities of women in the Latin American Caribbean region. It is not representative of all women's realities. So we are very clear on that because we understand that there is a lot of pressure to engage in intersectional, in post-colonial, decolonial, and you know, diversity, inclusion, different topics. But for that to be able to harness all those different 
uh, perspectives, we would have needed more funds, <laughs> more people, more resources, more time, more outreach, probably influencers. And once again, I am just a Puerto Rican woman. I'm not you know, tied into any media mogul or media investment firm. And by this time, if you have followed the podcast, you would have known my history with the mainstream media and being a freelancer, being a Puerto Rican woman, a Latina woman in the United States and in mainstream media and all the hurdles that I have to you know, surpass and it wasn't still enough to get stories across. And there's a lot of discrimination against Latina women, against Puerto Rican women, against Puerto Rican women that look like me because I'm not white. <laughs> I am mixed race. And, you know, there's a lot of different intersectionalities, realities to um, dig deep into that. So that's the first thing that... Um, I want to be very authentic with you is that I recognize that this project um, is lacking in many forms so we don't try to become like this general view of what's happening in Latin America it is not so just wanted to make it very clear and today I'm gonna share with you three main final results that we found in this process, in this three-year investigation. The first is related to everything that I just tell you, and that is the level of recognition, of self-recognition that women have in this part of the world. One of the things that we found in this documentary is that women are able in their testimonials to identify the types of violence, different types of gender-based violence connected to their intersectionality and their identity. So that is very, very rich because sometimes when we ask you know, women, what's your experience with gender violence? Have you been harassed? Have you been, you know, um, um, experienced sexual abuse or um, work discrimination? was your take we often you know uh, create questions that are very focused but in this documentary we launched a very simple question which was what's your experience with gender-based violence that was the main question for the testimonials and that led to many of these participants, voluntary participants, to engage in a whole recognition of the different levels of gender-based violence that they have experienced since childhood due to their identity, race, class, access to resources or access to several public places or institutions, etc. That is very, very groundbreaking because we did a, a focus group with um, gender experts and sociology experts, and they found that that was the richness of this project. Making the question so wide allows women 
not only to have like this cathartic moment where they're experiencing and talking what you know what's their um, history or, or their story but it's more than that is how complex or how simple do they allow themselves to explore how this concept has affect them throughout their life. We had testimonials that are very profound and heartbreaking, you know, like that was one of the reasons why it was so hard for me to engage in this project alone. And one of the reasons why I sought a lot of help from international institutions and international organizations to see if they could help me get this project across but that didn't happen because I didn't have enough testimonials and you know it was very hard to see that 392 testimonials were not enough that I needed to reach 500 and I reached 500 testimonials and it wasn't enough so I needed to reach a thousand and in this quantity search, they did not want it to give a glimpse or a chance or give me the time of day to look at the profound testimonials. This documentary has nine questions. It is not a simple survey of, oh, just tell me your story of gender-based violence. No, it's about what's your experience with gender-based violence in your country? What are the policies, the public policies and actions from your current government, your current administration that are harming the women the most? What are the actions that are creating gender inequality? What are the peace initiatives or the public or um, the actions from the government or from the civic society that are trying to eradicate gender-based violence? What are your views on what's happening in Latin America on how we suffer and how we fight gender-based violence. What are your views on feminist movements? What are your views on press freedom and the way that press tackles or you know approaches gender-based violence? Like this is a very rich documentary survey. So that was the first thing that we found that if any of you are doing you know ground work or working on gender-based violence you know in other parts of the world i invite you to look beyond the testimonials and find the richness of the intersectionality when you open up questions rather than trying to focus it or narrow it too much that's the first thing the second thing that we found was related to suffering and the feminist movements. One of the things that, I mean, it is kind of a given <laughs> that due to the Nuna Menos movements and the uh, legal abortion feminist movements and marches here in Latin America in the past few years where the documentary took place from 2017 to 2019, which was the period of time where we collected testimonials. Um, these two movements were very present and that showed in the documentary survey. Many of the 
denounces or the um, explanations of how women were suffering gender-based violence in regards to the state were related to these two movements. Um, specifically, in the cases of femicides, Mexico and Argentina were the top two countries that were denouncing, you know, the the killing of women is systematic. The impunity rates are absurd, and they need to to change. We need a reform of this of the judicial system. The government needs to do more. While in other countries such as Chile, such as Ecuador and El Salvador, Honduras, and Brazil, the movement of aborto legal or legal abortion um, movements were more present. And the denounces uh, in this documentary were based not only on abortion, but also sexual and reproductive rights. They were also talking about obstetric violence or violence against women that were giving birth. and. You know, it was very interesting in the case of Venezuela as well, because we found that women there, you know, due to the current crisis beyond the pandemic times, <laughs> before the pandemic, um, was, you know, like there was not enough access or resources to buy uh, anticonceptives or, you know, to have, you know, proper hygiene wash products. So that's very, very um, important to note that feminist movements do tend to um, inspire and shift the narratives of people that engage in these type of um, surveys and research because it's connected to the times. Another thing that we found was very triggering and it's connected to what we discuss here in the Women Who International Relations podcast is the international agendas of liberal feminism. Some of our participants denounced um, that international agendas of gender equality or the sustainable development goals or the 2030 agenda, etc. were kind of harming the local and native feminist movements. In which way, you may ask, we have cases like Chile, we have cases like Bolivia and Paraguay, which have very high concentrations of indigenous communities that are very present in urban cities. And one of the things that they expose is that international agendas tend to fund local feminist movements and organizations and they kind of steer the campaign like they tell these feminist movements and organizations you need to do i mean we are financing you but to engage in campaigns on gender equality or in uh, eradicating gender-based violence according to our standards not according to your standards of your own proper view of how we should do things. And this was denounced in our documentary. And this is something that we consider an area of opportunity for all of you researchers are out there that want to engage this in this um, conversation, because it, it opens 
this big question of whether we can talk transnationally on, on women experiencing experiences without homogenizing the discourse. Can we talk transnationally about gender violence or about gender equality or about gender peace or about women's rights or women's liberation movements, etc., without trying to impose a specific kind of way that it should be done. One of the things that we found in Chile, for example, in regards to this um, question is that the pressure that feminist movements and feminist organizations feel there it's alienating women that may find connected to the cause but they are not connected to the way the discourse or the campaigns are done because it doesn't feel authentic to their reality. It feels like something imposed by, you know, an Eurocentric, Northern-centric way of feminism. And they don't feel like they're talking with them. They're talking to them. That's a difference. Even if they are Chileans carrying over these campaigns and these, you know, um, 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 public policies and lobby um, and, and different initiatives, it doesn't feel like it is talking with Chilean women. It's talking to Chilean women and they don't feel part of it. And that's an area of opportunity that we found in regards to the feminist movements and the feminist fights here is that there are mixed feelings all around the documentary on feminist movements. They are women that consider that the feminist movements are very radical, that they support the cause, but they don't support the way that they are doing it. There are others that don't feel like the feminist movements are doing enough. And there are others that consider that the feminist movements are the only solution for um, the advancements of women's rights. So that different layers of complexity, we, we consider that as an area of opportunity. Um, when we launch the virtual premiere tomorrow, um, we are going to be um, linking the video presentation with all the statistics for you to read it further. And we are going to be launching the website on December 15th. The final website and uh, we are going to be featuring an ebook that's going to be in Spanish language um, but you will be more than happy to check every case study of the 18 countries that we have been featuring and you will also look at all the statistics that we have covered. In regards with suffering um, we're still in the second um, final result. In regards with suffering there was um, this growing perception that being a woman is horrible and we did a mapping of all the times that 
our participants were saying that being a woman was shed in our country, in each country, you know, and it was very hard to read all the testimonials and read all the narratives that kept repeating over and over again because the perception of suffering is so ingrained since our childhood and our culture that we started working on different concepts. We started working on the learned indefension um, theory we started working on the paternalistic view of the world or the solutions to gender-based violence. Um, we started working on systemic um, psychology to understand how culture um, teaches women from early childhood here in this part of the world that they, they are the lesser sex and they are bound to experience violence. I mean, it is expected, it is normalized, it is justified. So, you know, figuring out ways that you can live outside that norm, it's unacceptable. So it also ties in with the absence of fathers in many families where due to, you know, macho culture and several power dynamics and, you know, different ways of living in different countries in this continent, you will find on a greater or a lesser extent that women feel that the state is the father that they never had. So they approach the feminist movements and the feminist fights seeking the state up to a 70 5% of all participants in our survey that the state is the one that needs to solve everything related to women's issues and gender-based violence. The state must see women. The state must recognize women as valuable, as, you know, uh, uh, first-grade citizens, not second-grade citizens. The state should not look at women as always victims. So there's these, um, like, perception that once I gain state recognition, then I'm considered valuable. That is not the case of all participants in this survey. Once again, I want to reiter reiterate that this is not a survey representative of all the realities of all the women in this country. No, we only had 700 testimonials. So I'm just talking about what we had in this specific research, okay? Um, and I, I know that it may sound like, why are you doing this disclaimer? I'm doing it because you know, there's this criticism on generalization and I'm not trying to contribute to that, okay? So I am very well aware that this is a small study and we have more than 500 million people living in this continent. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not trying to, you know, talk for everybody. It's not. It's just this survey that's what we found and that's why it's so powerful that we um, engage in data journalism because in that way we could 
showcase you with numbers with similar patterns with policies specifically targeted by each country where are the connections so it's not always you know interpretative or qualitative um, so yeah that's one of um, the the final results and the third last result that I want to share with you today of course there are many um, other things that we found in this documentary is regards to the press and it is connected to the way that we tell our stories so I'm gonna launch this question to you in case if, if it hits home is like what are the experiences that you are living and what are the ways that you are telling these experiences these stories how are you forming stories from the experiences the experiences that you are having this is connected to symbolic violence and to the role of the press or the media we did a whole um, section in our presentation on the role of media and what we found is that the way that we describe the role of media in framing gender-based violence is in three parts in uh, subject verb and adjectives so i'm gonna like share with you um basically in the subject we describe that the main cause of media coverage of gender-based violence according to our participants is martial culture sensationalism uh, lack of gender perspective and shame what we found in the verbs that women were describing in press what the the, the, the media do once they engage with these um, objectives they revictimize women they justify violence they minimize what happens to women they shame women and they criminalize women and this is so so hard to see because we have testimonial after testimonial talking about these media practices and though there are some testimonials that do engage in talking about alternative media and how they are good um good journalism taking place in some countries in most countries what we found is that the connection between media institutions and politics or religion institutions religious institutions are continuing the martial culture and uh, the symbolic violence and we open this question up is that in which ways can we engage in a media coverage that do not that that denounces gender-based violence but do not re-victimize women once again in the process and do not continue to feed this vision that women are helpless and that nobody is doing anything because that's something that we also found in this map is the absence from the beginning of the questions to the end of the questions the absence of calling out who is the perpetrator of the violence 
So we have quotes that say, oh, we are being killed. Oh, um, we are being harassed on the streets. Oh, we are, you know, not being heard. Our voices are being shut down, closing quote. And what we found is like, okay, but who's doing that? We are not talking about men. We are not talking about men in power. We are not giving names. And of course, we can say and we can argue that this is a survey. Not everybody will just use it to denounce who exactly was the one doing it. But the, the absence of the perpetrator is one of the ways that the violence continues because we are not giving it a responsible and we are not holding them accountable. And what we found in the, in the media, also in adjectives, is that we considered it to be macho culture inspired, morbid, misogynic, misogynistic, and regrettable. So these are like the top objectives that we use to describe media, which leads us to understand the final part of this documentary is what are the solutions that we see. Um, in our participant study, we found two main solutions that continue over and over. And 80% of our uh, participants considered education campaigns gender perspective, gender equality, curriculums in the school level is necessary for things to change. That denotes one thing, that we often view solutions to gender-based violence as future-based, like, oh, the future generations will benefit from gender equality or gender perspective curriculums at the school level. But this present generation, we are kind of doomed. So we just need to pay attention to the next generations. Um, our participants, it is important to know that our participants are um, half are 18 to 24 years old and the other half are between are divided 30 percent um 25 to 40 years old and 20 percent uh, plus 40. so even from young age we consider that the solution is going to be future generations not even touch upon us so that's very um worrisome for me to think about you know because i want to um as a woman as a puerto rican woman in this country i i, I want to you know um find solutions that i can live with today not only leave it for the next generation so um that's something to work on that's very interesting and the other part is um the other 20 percent of the solutions are mostly based on public policies but groundbreaking enough, most of the public policies are to um, ask the state to have harsher um, and punitive actions towards the perpetrators of gender-based violence. So we still consider justice to be punitive, not reformative or not, you know, conciliatory or resolutions, conflict resolution based. It's more like 
we need the state to stop the impunity and to put harsher terms of whoever does gender-based violence. So that's also very interesting to note in this survey. And lastly, um, if we can sum up the, for me, as a producer, as the director of this third documentary project, the main lesson that I take from this journey, and some of you know that it's been very hard to um, launch it um, and leave it because, you know, I'm still living in this continent and I'm still, you know, um, seeing these reports and engaging with feminist movements on a daily basis. One of the things that I consider the most valuable lesson for me and I want to inspire women with this documentary is our level and our perception of self-worth. It really struck home with me that most of my narratives towards gender-based violence or towards the work that I do is constructed in the mind. And we've been working in this podcast on, you know, like trying to instill questions on, you know, what's being taught to us from the school to the university level to our industry level, etc. Like, what are the narratives that keep on repeating? And which ones are the ones that really resonate with us or that we are repeating just because that's what's normalized, you know? Like, who legitimizes knowledge? But also, what part of my story is revictimizing myself in the process? Am I seeing myself as the subject of these um, experiences? Or am I still objectifying myself in my own narrative? Like things are passing to me, you know, like violence is happening to me, but where is my role in stopping violence or in changing the way that things are? That's not very clear in this documentary and that's something that I take for my personal life moving on, closing this chapter of research is like we are being taught even in the language level to see the feminist movements or the fight for women's rights as something that is collective, not personal. It's like we are working towards change. But in the collective, are we aware of our own subjectivity? Or are we just passing from an object-based perception to a collective-based perception? Because that's what the movement, that's what we are taught that the strength comes in numbers. It doesn't come from you. This is still a question that I'm still working towards. I don't know the answers yet. And probably you may find it very incendiary to even think about it. Um, but I don't know. I would love to know your thoughts and engage in a different conversation on what it is to be a woman. What are the stories that we are telling others and telling ourselves on the experiences that we are living 
every day and if the state if these institutions locally internationally global institutions were once created by an idea by a mindset if all these structures, not only patriarchal structures, but also matriarchal, matrilineal structures, were often created in the mind, then it is in the mind that we can change the system. But it needs to start with a higher level of self-recognition and self-awareness and self-deconstruction of everything that we once were taught by others and start a journey of identifying what is my authentic truth. We were um, asked when we were doing this um, virtual premiere if we had like experiences of indigenous women or trans women or members of the LGBTQ community you know, like trying to find how diverse were the participants. That's an area of opportunity that we find is that still the level of self-recognition in this type of surveys is not mainstream. We had up to four or five cases of women that self-identified as indigenous and started talking from that space because I'm indigenous or because I'm coming from these rural communities, this is what's happening to me and this is what's happening to others that are having it worse. We had two cases of women that self-identified as women and one case of a woman that in her testimonial wasn't very clear of the process that she was experiencing so she just said that people often see me as a woman in spite of me experiencing a specific process which she didn't name so that is still a novel concept in this type of um, spaces maybe we need more safe spaces for people to explore their intersectionality and their gender orientation or the gender their gender identities in a safe zone free of judgment and open for conversation rather than discussion or you know trying to impose our views on what they should or should not do so yeah we we found these very important areas of opportunity and we hope that by leaving this website and this ebook open for all of you to download and to see further, hopefully inspires more questions on how are you experiencing life and how are you framing those stories for others to see and how those stories are contributing to these wider view or wider vision of what it's like to be a woman in Latin America, in the Caribbean, in Africa, in Asia, in North America, in Europe, in Oceania, and elsewhere. So 
this is all that I wanted to share with you um, today. I hope that you liked it and I look forward to knowing your thoughts, to reading you on Instagram. Please follow us at womenhood underscore IR for more updates, um, to uh, receive notifications of the upcoming episodes. We have two interviews lined up for the end of this 2020. And once again, thank you so much for your support. We we did a very good year in spite of all these circumstances. We did launch this awesome investigation thanks to all your support so without further ado i want to send you a big hug thank you for tuning in and talk to you soon